ever get caught with your pants down? For us, it's an embarrassing situation. For a Roman soldier, it could be deadly. If they forgot their belt, everything fell down. Their breastplate wasn't secure, their sword fell to the ground, and the armor protecting their legs disappeared. You've got the picture. Not the best way to go into battle. Welcome to Truth Encounter. Our study leader, Dave Wurtson, is teaching through the book of Ephesians, and we thank you for joining us. What happens to a believer when they forget their belt? Truth, their breastplate, righteousness, and their boots, the gospel of peace. You could be marching into a spiritual battle half-naked and unprepared, but this week's Truth Encounter will help you be equipped for the fight. I remember my sophomore year in high school, we were playing football one Saturday afternoon. Funny how things stick out in your mind. When you're playing quarterback, sometimes you go through the whole game and nothing happens. You know, you hand the ball off to your fullback and he gets smashed. And then you hand the ball off to your halfback and they get smashed. And you might go through several minutes like that, maybe three-quarters of the game. And you're calling these plays back in the huddle. And there's just all of a sudden, I don't know what it is, it's like a surging tide. Your line begins to click and they make their blocks. And, and those are the times you remember. And here years later, I remember we started driving on the field on a Saturday afternoon, and I remember handing the ball off to my fullback, and he grinded out about six yards. And I mean, we were driving. And in football, when you get down inside the 25-yard line, it's like payday coming. I mean, you can just feel the, the power in your line, and everyone's really moving. And I remember this like it was yesterday. I got under sender, and I turned to my left, and I faked the ball to my fullback. He'd been grinding out about four or five yards, and I tried to sucker the, the center linebacker to hit him, and sure enough, the center linebacker hit him, and I pulled it out of his stomach and then I pitched it a little bit wider out to my halfback that was breaking out around the left end and my tackle for once made the hit on his tackle the end hit his defensive end and the halfback just split right into open territory and I'm, th- I'm just thinking as I turn and look toward like man this is it we're gonna score right around the 12 yard line must have, I'm not sure whether it's a safety of the cornerback but all of a sudden, I see somebody streaking through, and our, our halfback was fast. And so the, the cornerback wasn't able to get a good angle on him, but he reached out, I'll never forget it, and he grabbed a hold of the guy's pants right here. We wore this little fabric belt that you kind of put it through two rings, and you pulled it tight. And I remember that, that defensive cornerback grabbed a hold of those two rings and just pulled. That's all he got a hold of. He just ripped the belt completely out of the guy's pants. And this is back in the days before your pants were all that elastic kind of stuff. These are more fabric, you know, where you wore leather helmets and all that. It wasn't quite that bad. But, <laughs> but I remember they weren't the kind that would just stay up. So he, when he pulled that belt, the pants on our halfback went right down below his knees. He started struggling, you know, because he's trying to run, but his, his pants were falling down around his knees. Around the six-yard line, he fell over. No one hit him. He just tripped himself in his pants. I'll never forget, first of all, the whole team ran to surround it. But I remember leaning over and saying, you idiot, why don't you just keep running? You just needed to make four or five more yards and we'd score a touchdown. But there was, an, there was an example in modern life where I remember being embarrassed about a guy getting caught with their pants down because their belt got ripped off. If you were a Roman soldier in the first century, it wasn't just football that would embarrass you. In a battle, as a Roman soldier got ready for battle, It was very important for them to get their belt on right. And we want to talk this morning, we're looking at Ephesians chapter 6, 
And this morning as we talk about Ephesians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul is going to talk to us about three items of a Roman soldier's equipment. The first thing was not just a little fabric belt. In fact, in the first century, this would all be made out of leather. And this would be like an apron that the Roman soldier would put around. This belt would be go over, and it really held. This would all be leather straps, and it would, hold, it would give them protection over their thighs, and it was also something that he could gather his longer robe, stick it in here. And this was like the basis of all of his armament. He had two other belts that he wore. They wanted to make sure that things stayed up. He had a belt that he put his sword in, and then he had another belt that was like a kind of a protection for his stomach that would often be, be studded with metal, maybe even had some metal spikes on it. They wore this. But underneath all that, they wore this, kind of an apron. In fact, some of those that were more wealthy would even have almost like a middle-aged, very tightly woven armor that was flexible that they would put underneath. So that's one thing we're going to talk about. We want to talk about the soldier's belt that holds everything together. The second thing we want to talk about, it was really important when you went into ancient battle, was your breastplate. That was the belt that would hold underneath all the other equipment, would really would stabilize this breastplate. And all of you, if you think about going into battle in the Roman times, the first century times, we're thinking very much of hand-to-hand battle, like because we're talking about we wrestle not against flesh and blood, we wrestle against the principality and the power. So Paul in Ephesians 6 is talking about wrestling hand-to-hand. This is close contact. You can imagine if a guy is trying to hit you with a dagger, with like the Romans would often use a short sword that was almost like a, like a big Bowie knife, you might say. If you're wrestling with a guy with a, with a knife like that, this is going to come in handy to guard your lungs and your heart and your abdominal area. You could imagine if you didn't have this kind of equipment, if it, if it didn't hold secure, you could get your heart ripped up pretty fast. So this was real important to a Roman soldier. I didn't have some Roman sandals, so I just brought Dave Wharton's sandals, but that'll help us to move to the more modern era that Paul's talking about today. This is one kind of ancient footwear that just kind of moves on. The Roman sandals aren't that much different than this. They don't have the rubber on the bottom. They don't have the metal buckle. They would be tied. But a Roman soldier would have shoes kind of like this. It would all be tied up. In fact, some of the Roman soldiers even wore, they weren't cowboys, but they wore like half boots that would have metal spikes. And some of you that are football players that use spikes, and like if those of you that are playing baseball, the Roman soldiers actually used some of the early manifestations of those spiked shoes because it would give them real strong traction in the battle. The Apostle Paul is using all this imagery. Remember I told you that he's in prison. If you look at Ephesians chapter 6, 10, we've been studying last week. We began to talk about our armament as believers, equipped for the fight. We said, finally, be strong in the Lord. And in his mighty armor, put on the full armor of God. Today we're going to talk about three parts of the full armor of God that Paul talks about. Why? Because you're in a fight. You need to take your stand against the devil's schemes. If you feel in your Christian life like you're in a fight, don't get discouraged. You are in a fight. This is an internal conflict, not necessarily an external conflict. Your Christian life isn't going to be without conflict. You're going to have a lot of conflict internally. You're going to have a lot of temptations internally. That's what Paul is telling the Ephesians, and I'm telling you. Don't quit because you have a lot of internal conflict because you feel like you're battling. That's a good thing. It means that you're in the fight and that you probably have come to know Jesus, and Satan doesn't like it. 
If you never have any internal conflict and it doesn't bother you at all to tell a lie, it doesn't bother you at all to do immoral things, and you could care less about the gospel, then probably you need to consider Christ. Because you might be sitting there really internally at peace and no conflict, everything's going great, but you might be lost eternally because you've never come to know Jesus. But if you've been going through a week and you've got all kinds of pressure and it's hard in your marriage and you find that there's temptations to get angry and as as a kid you're tempted not to obey mom and dad and it's a struggle and you want to do it but there's a part of you that says, no, I'm not going to obey, that's a good sign. And the Apostle Paul is saying, you're in a conflict and the evil one is trying to take you out. He wants to wrestle with you and he wants to destroy you. And the Apostle Paul is saying the way we can stand against his schemes is to receive this armament that Jesus has given to us. For our struggles, not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. It's not just a physical conflict, but the real conflict is a spiritual conflict. A lot of your friends believe that there's only a natural world, that there's no spiritual upper story, there's no invisible world, there's no, if you, in a philosophical sense, that a lot of people believe there's no transcendent world. Well, I've got news for you, there is. In fact, all that's really precious to you, all that's valuable to you, is centered not just in the physical world, but in the world of great supernatural things. The moment you die, you're going to be transferred into that spiritual realm. The realm where there's this invisible conflict that we can't see right now. But when you die, just like that, if you've trusted Jesus, you'll find out that the man with a nail print in his hand is really the victor in that world. And that's what your faith is about. Or are you going to find out, you know, I missed him. I I lived just my life for myself, and I lived just what I want to do, and and I believed in what I thought was other truth. And just like that, you'll be caught in that world of the transcendent, and if you've rejected Jesus and you've made that decision, then you're going to be lost from him. That's really serious stuff. And God respects you enough that he gives you the choice about that. You have to think this morning, what do I believe? Do I believe that there's just a physical world? I'm going to live just for that? Or do I believe what Paul is saying, that there is this supernatural world? And one of the things Paul is saying is you have kind of an insight into that supernatural world because in your own invisible spirit that I can't see, in your internal world, you're interacting with the Holy Spirit and with the demonic forces and the evil one that's against you. So writing your own personality... If you think back over this week, it hasn't just been about physical things. It's also been about an invisible internal conflict. And you all can think back, if you know Jesus, when you've prayed, for example, when at times you've really sensed that the Holy Spirit was leading you in your prayers. And one of the things we want to encourage each other to do this morning is to be more sensitive to this heavenly world. And Paul, I think, is using the world of the heavenly idea of that transcendent world of the supernatural beings. Now, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are in a class by themselves. So this isn't an equal fight. And so you don't need to feel frightened. You don't need to feel you can't win because your Savior has already defeated, given this evil one a mortal blow. But the Apostle Paul is reminding us that that the conflict still rages in this world. Earlier in the book, the Apostle Paul said that the evil one is the prince of the power of this present world atmosphere. And so as you watch the me, as you listen to the news, as you read Time magazine, as you go out among your friends, and and you're going to be exposed to a world atmosphere. 
that totally disagrees with what I'm teaching you this morning. And you need to be ready for that. And you need to decide what you're going to believe, what you're going to build your life upon. And the Apostle Paul assumes that, yes, there is a prince of the power of this present world atmosphere, the evil one, and he has a scheme against you. He wants to take you out. He's like a spiritual Al-Qaeda force that's coming against you. Then the Apostle Paul says, but against these rulers of the dark world, against these spiritual forces in the heavenly realm, therefore, because we're in this conflict with this spiritual Al-Qaeda that's against us, he says, therefore, put on the full armor of God. So the Apostle Paul is telling you that today, it's real important that you decide, have you put on your belt? Do you have the first line of your equipment in place? And this idea of putting on goes back to the idea of what he talked about in chapter 4 about putting on the new man. I, I began you thinking about that. And as I talked about the armor, I want you to see its relationship to what Paul has been teaching you through the whole book, that when you receive Jesus, you received a new nature. And a lot of this idea of the armament is very much related to the new person that was created inside of you. And what the Apostle Paul is saying is that you receive that as a gift. So that produces your standing with God. And a lot of what I talked to you this morning is going to relate to understanding that you have a standing with God. You have the gift of this armament. But it's very important that you live day by day that you willingly choose to let the Holy Spirit express this reality in your relationships. So the Apostle Paul is telling us, put on the full armor of God. Why? So that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. The day you say, Dave, what is this day of evil? There's two ideas in this. One is that the first century church had this idea that there's an intensification of the spiritual struggle. The book of Revelation that we've studied together talks about the ultimate day of the struggle against the evil one. You have pictures in Revelation of the evil one being cast out of the throne room of heaven and coming to this earth and wreaking havoc and stimulating the Antichrist and the false prophet and this tremendous final struggle between Jesus and those that oppose him. The first century church was filled with that idea. The Old Testament talks about there's going to come a day of reckoning, the day of Yahweh, the day of the Lord, when there's going to become a final conflict, a culminating conflict on the earth. In the first century, if you read, if you're from a Jewish background, the Qumran literature talks about battles between the sons of light and the sons of the darkness. And they're very much living to make sure that they win the battle of the sons of light. The Apostle Paul is living in an atmosphere that's filled with that kind of thinking. In the book of Ephesians, though, the Apostle Paul doesn't just talk about ultimate days of evil, but he talks about an ongoing struggle. He says, we wrestle today, not just some future day, but we wrestle today against the principality and power. We have our own, the evil day. As you think about your Christian life, as you think back over your Christian life, there's times when there's great temptation, times when there's great pressure to turn away from your commitment to Jesus or to fall into really serious sin. In the Apostle Peter's life, one of the evil days was, was in Gethsemane at the Last Supper before they went to Gethsemane where Jesus said, Peter, Satan desires to have you. And I am praying for you. And after the whole event takes place, I'm going to bring you back. Jesus talks about this, the day of evil for Peter. 
And he blows it. He doesn't pray. He doesn't watch. He doesn't stay girded, ready for battle. He forgets his armament, and he denies the Lord three times. And yet we see in that story the incredible faithfulness of Jesus. Jesus remains true to him. He rises from the dead, and Jesus calls Peter back to himself. That's the story you want to have of your life, only you want to stand on Peter's shoulders and not fall asleep when Jesus tells you to pray and not deny him, always remembering his grace that when you fall, if you come back, the Savior died to forgive you. He rose again to restore you. If the Apostle Paul was speaking to Peter, he would have said, Peter, remember, you had the evil day. You had the day. Some of Paul's associates, Paul had associates that, that ministered with him that uh, were guys that were teaching like I'm teaching. And the evil day attacked them and they went away from the truth. The Apostle Paul will talk about his sidekicks, and some of them says, well, this man used to walk with me, but now he's abandoned. He loved this present world, for example, more than he loved the things of God. That would be an evil day where someone fell victim in the battle. We're going to have kids that are raised in our church family. They're committed to Jesus, and they come to know Jesus, and they witness, but then they go away. They get a secular job. They're around all kinds of secular friends. They stop going to church. They stop reading their Bible every day. They forget about their armor. And the evil one robs them of their understanding. In other words, they don't lose their salvation, but they can go through a time in their life where they're way away from the victory of walking with Jesus. And they fall into a lot of sin, a lot of temptation. They fall into a lot of evil things. This is a very real thing. And so every one of you needs to understand the Apostle Paul is talking about an ultimate day of evil, but he's also talking about kind of an ebb and flow in the pressure against your own life, I believe. And I think he combines both of those things. And so as you think about this coming week, it's really important that you take your armor, that it's not just a light thing, but you view yourself like a soldier, like a United States Marine that's in Iraq. They can't take putting on their equipment lightly in the morning. They got to get their equipment on. They need to be sure to take their rifle with them. They need to be sure to do security checks. They need to be sure to go with their friends. All that kind of stuff is just second nature for a soldier. And the Apostle Paul, way back in the first century, was challenging us about that. Then he says this, Therefore, put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand in the day of evil. You may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, stand. That's the idea. I struggle with this verse because it always seems to me like it goes on. And you've got to put a period there. Standing is a very powerful idea for the Apostle Paul. Just to give you a little bit of an idea, he talks in 1 Thessalonians. This is the very first church that he began to write to. His earliest epistles, he writes, Now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. He tells these early, young, fledging believers, I'm thrilled for you because you're standing firm in your relationship with Jesus. In 2 Thessalonians, the second letter he wrote to this new fledgling church, Then, brothers, stand firm. How do you do that? You hold to the teaching we pass on to you by word of mouth, and by our letter. You have access to Paul's letters. You need to know what's in those letters and then stand firm in what the Apostle Paul is teaching you. So now you've received this equipment. Now he's going to outline six key elements of our equipment, which is what I really want you to think about this morning. The very first equipment that we receive that Paul emphasizes is this in verse 14. Stand firm them, having the belt of truth buckled around your waist. Paul talks, first of all, about this essential first substantiating equipment in a Roman soldier. And also, 
In the Old Testament, the, the Lord in Isaiah, for example, in Isaiah 11, it pictures the great Messiah that's coming as being girded with a belt of faithfulness and dependability. Now, for the next few minutes, I want to talk to you. If you, don't, if you haven't heard anything I've said this morning, you need to hear what I'm going to say. Because our culture doesn't believe in a belt of truth. And I want to show you that. I want to illustrate that to you this morning. First of all, I need three volunteers. Three volunteers, come up real quickly. Okay, here's one. Here's two. And I'm going to be the equal sign, okay? Now, if we have one plus one, it equals how many? All the kids tell me, real complicated math. Sam, it equals, okay. Now, how do we know that? Okay, you can, with your little kid, you do this with apples. I'm doing it with people, okay? You say, if you have one apple, if we have one person, and we bring them over on the other side, the equal sign, okay? And then we take another person, and we bring him over on the equal side. How many people are here now? Tell me. Real complicated? Two, okay? But if we go to China, if we go to China, then if we go to China, we come back over here, back here again. In China... If we take one guy over here and put him on this side, the equal side, and we take this guy over here on the equal side, we now, in China, because it's a different culture, different value systems, now we have how many people? We have three people on the other side of the equal signs, right? In China, one plus one equals three, right? How many of you think that? Well, the answer is, you say, well, you say, well, prove it to me. Well, I can fly these guys to China. I'm not going to do that this morning. And we can do the same thing. We can take one guy and another guy, and we can go on the other side of the equal side. In China, it still equals two. And so one of the ways, in fact, you need to understand, one of our approaches to truth, one of our approaches to truth is this is like an experiment. I can actually have put the numbers on a piece of paper, one plus one equals and then I can actually take apples or people or whatever I want. And anywhere I go in the world, repeatedly, I can do it over and over again. I'm never going to get three over here. How many of you believe that's true, right? Sam, is that right? Okay, this is what we call realism. This is what we call realism. And you, can, you learn something, you can, be real, you can really wow your teachers. And I want all of you to say, I believe in realism because I believe that there's such a thing called truth, Okay. Most of our society buys what I've said so far, but they don't buy realism. I want to tell you what you're going to learn in the English department at UT, and I'm going to apply it to religion, okay? Buddy is Jewish, all right? Did you know that? Buddy is Jewish, okay? Now, in Buddy's story, Abraham is the founder of his people. Moses saw Yahweh at Mount Sinai and gave the Ten Commandments. And also made a promise to Abraham that the land of Israel would belong to him and his seed from Isaac if they're obedient and follow God's laws, okay? And that if you obey the law of Moses, if you obey the law of Moses and keep all the kosher laws and keep the basic Ten Commandments, the heartbeat of it, you love God with all your heart, it, you'll go to heaven, okay? So Buddy's an Orthodox Jew, and your English teacher at UT will tell you, okay, this is what Jewish people believe, okay? Bobby here, he is a Christian, okay? Now, he believes that you get to heaven because Jesus is God's son. And he died on the cross for your sins, and he rose again. And if you personally receive that gift, you're going to go to heaven. That's what 
what we believe here, okay? You got that? Now, Matt over here is Islamic. Now, Matt believes that he's going to pick up on what the Jewish person believes, what the Christian believes, only he comes 600 years later, and he's got the final message. And he believes that Moses was a great prophet. Abraham is the father. Let me take Abraham. Matt believes that Abraham did not produce the promise through Isaac, but through Ishmael. Not Isaac, but through Ishmael. Because his holy book, the Quran, puts the stress upon Ishmael. He doesn't believe that the Jewish people belong in the land. He owns the land. Okay? The sons of Ishmael own the land. He also believes that Muhammad is the great prophet. And he's greater than Jesus, greater than Moses, because he's the final revelation that's not come through Allah. Okay? Now, when I tell you those stories, are those stories the same? Okay, are they really different? Okay, now this is where the trick comes in. Most of you today are with the Christian here in the middle, okay? But the University of Texas, you're going to be sitting there with Jewish kids and with Islamic kids, and I want to share with you what the English department is going to tell you. What the vast majority of the teachers are going to tell you. I know this because Janae sits in the class and I debate, I have to share with her and we interact on email about what's going on, okay? They're going to tell you this is great because this Jewish person has their story. And it's true for them. Okay? Like, it's fine for, for Buddy to believe that Abraham's the father of his people. Moses, you know, received the Ten Commandments. And, and you can have the Jewish rabbis talking about their story. And their story's what counts. You need to understand that none of this might be true in reality. Maybe there never was an Abraham. Maybe there never was a Moses, but that doesn't make any difference because there is this community that that story really means a lot to them, okay? Now, it doesn't make any difference that the story here contradicts the story here because if you're a Christian, the rules of the game, and in philosophy we call this, it's, it's, it's the, I, everything is in language. It's just a language game. If you're into linguistics, if you work for Wycliffe, you should understand about the language games that are played. And the idea is that language doesn't really connect with real reality. It just connects with stories of groups of people. And you need to really think about this because your culture, it, a lot of the young people today automatically believe like I'm sharing now. And they don't believe like the Apostle Paul believed. And you moms and dads, a lot of you don't really believe the way that the Apostle Paul believed. You don't believe in truth anymore. Buddy has his truth. We have Christian truth here. And I can't say, what well, you know, wait a minute. He says here that you're saved by working hard to obey the Ten Commandments. Jesus claims that you get saved by receiving the gift of his character to come and live inside of you and trusting what he did on the cross. Over here, the cross means nothing. In fact, it's a terrible thing. That's why there was so much hostility about the passion. It's awful. A father kills his son. But that's okay, because if you're a Christian, then this is great truth for us. It holds you together. It gives you nice, warm relationships. And it doesn't make a blood of difference that what this person believes here totally contradicts what this person believes here, and what this person believes here contradicts what this person believes here. 
Because this person here, in real discussions with real Jewish people that believe in Judaism today, they don't believe Jesus is God's son. They don't believe that his death was significant. That's a real disagreement. But at UT, you'll be told, but don't worry about it because it's just a story. Okay, just a story. Now, when we come over here, this person doesn't believe that the Jews actually should own the land. They own the land. Now, is that a real conflict in today's world? But it shouldn't be because these people need to mind their own business and these people need to mind their own business because who cares? It's not really anybody's land because who knows whose land it is. They need to just stay in their own mosque with their own little stories. And we don't want to get in a fight because we disagree. And the way we do that is we just turn all of it into just make-believe stories that you might get support in your life but it's not anything to get upset about. So this person here doesn't believe that Jesus was the son of God. This person here believed that Jesus was a great prophet. Is that different from what you believe or the same? You need to decide. There's millions of people that really believe Jesus was just a good prophet, just one of the special mystical people that, that heard from the great Allah. But this person here straightened out the mess that was made here and the mess that was made here, and we have the final revelation here. Now, much of your culture says that these people keep fighting together, and that's what's messing everything else. So what I do, I need a fourth person here. David, you come up here. The person at UT, your professor, says, I'm, go all the way up high. The professor at UT says, I'm smarter than everyone else. And I'm really, I'm able to tell you what's really true because I'm the one that sits above all this and helps you to understand that this is just a story, this is just a story, this is just a story. But what I want you to know, students, I want you to listen to me. This person believes in a story too. I really want you to understand that. This person believes in their story with elite prophets from Harvard and Yale and different universities, and they have their priests that develop their stories. And this is what I want you to understand. You're going to be exposed to what we call post-modern thinking and deconstructionism. What this site often does is they attack all three of these positions to show how they kill each other. And what they're going to do is we're going to tear everything down. Nobody really knows what's true. And that's where a bunch of our culture is right now, in two areas, on the area of truth and the area of righteousness. This professor up here is going to do the same thing with the breastplate of righteousness. They're going to tell you the Jews think that it's wrong to commit adultery. The Christians think it's wrong to commit adultery. The Islamic people believe it's long to, to, to commit adultery. But we have greater insight. If you really love the other person's husband and they make you feel really, really good and you're two consenting adults and if 51% of our culture decides that extramarital affairs and adultery is really, really a good thing and it's healthy for you and all the psychological reports say that it is, then this traditional idea of morality needs to be put aside and you can enter into the glorious liberation of new life from the new insight this is what's happening all around us let me do it i'll do it with a really concrete thing okay and these are some areas where they agree this side here said if you sleep with a man as you sleep with a woman it could make you sick 
there's a really good chance. Proverbs will tell you there's a really good chance you'll burn inside and it could be deadly. That's the same thing with heterosexual immorality too. Okay? This side here firmly agreed with this side. It's really wrong for a man and a man and a woman and a woman to sleep together and to have sexual relationship. And it'll make you sick. And it will hurt you emotionally. It will hurt you spiritually. And it might seem like it's heaven on earth, but it's really going to hurt you. And interesting enough, this side here actually agrees with these other two guys. But this side here says... These guys are bad. In fact, most of you in this room are bad because this person has the new morality, the new right and wrong. And now you're going to be taught, if you've got a guy and a guy that make each other feel like they're alive and make each other feel happy and make each other feel so friendly and they have great warm companionship, especially if they're over 18, then it'll be awesome. It'll be a beautiful incredible thing. We'll even have churches that that talk about how marvelous it is for them to get together. And that's the new wave. And anyone that disagrees with that is really a bad guy. And what they're sharing is they have their story. And what our society does, we'll take a poll to figure out who's right. So if 51% says this guy is right, this guy's wrong, this guy's wrong, this guy's wrong, then this guy's right. What we're saying is now I'm going to believe this story. That's where your society is. And what I want all the kids to know, I'm part of this generation here. We decided that all this traditional morality is a bunch of baloney. We're going to really be free. And we've got antibiotics now that will really work. We've got equipment that's going to really help you. You can live any way you want to sexually. That's what these people really believe. But the young person, I want you to think about, is it just about story? Is it just about you have your story and I have your story? Because what I want you to know is that in real life, real people get sick, and it's not just a story. Real people die, and it's not just a story. We close this passage by talking about the gospel of peace. Some of you are getting all riled up. In fact, on those three things, the Islamic guy wants to kill the Christian guy who wants to kill the Jewish person. Because we really believe in truth. In the real world, there's real disagreement, real truthful conflict about what the different... I use the great monotheistic faith. I could have brought in other religious systems. But one of the things I want to understand is that there's real disagreement. Now, the next question you need to ask yourself, should this Christian grab up their sword and knock out the Jew and knock out the Islamic person? And the Apostle Paul closes by talking about the gospel of peace. I still believe in truth. And I want to make room for truth. You say, Dave, what do you mean by that? Okay, I believe there's a mathematical truth. I believe you can prove it by experiment, by actually counting. One person plus another person equals two people. You say, well, Dave, what about history? I believe that you have every right to analyze, well, what happened in Moses' life? What do I believe happened in Moses' life? How do you find that out? You look at sources. And when we come to historical things, historians have to look at witnesses and they have to evaluate the credibility of those witnesses and then they have to make a decision about what those witnesses said. Okay, let me tell you a story. Yesterday was Fiona, my third grandbaby's birthday. At 7 o'clock, very close to there, Mary and I jumped in a car. We went and picked up Mary's mom after getting bear claws and coffee. 
And we drove down 67, then we got on 35, we went to Hillsboro, we went down to 35. At 9.30, we got there a few minutes before Joel and Courtney did. We went to Fiona's other grandparents, and we celebrated Fiona's first birthday. We swam in the pool, and then we had a kind of a fruit cake that was very, very healthy. And then we went out to eat at a Mediterranean restaurant, and then we jumped back in the car, and we reversed the way we came in the morning, and we got back here at 9.30. How many believe that that's true? How do you know that? Number one, you have to decide, well, is David a big, fat liar? Maybe I am. Sometimes I am. <laughs> what else could you do? You can ask Mary if what I told you is the true. You can ask Mary's mom because she went with us. You could also get on the phone and call Joel and Courtney. You can verify what happened yesterday is something that happened in the past, so it's already slipped into history, and yet you all can find out based upon witnesses. And I want to tell you something. If I call Joel up and say, it was a great story. I never really got in the car. I never swam in the pool with either Blythe or Fiona. We never had her first birthday cake with stuff all over her face. But I experienced it all in a great story. I actually stayed here in Midlothian. How many of you think Joel and Courtney are going to be happy with me as a grandparent? And that's where your culture is. It does make a difference. Now, I can argue that it was all make-believe. We went through an imaginary car. There isn't such thing as reality. But if you want to believe that, you can. But I think that I actually experienced something real yesterday, and I had to show up to do that. And I can verify it based upon my testimony. You can check with Mary. You can check with Mary's mom. You say, well, Dave, I can't do the religious things. Oh, yes, you can. I would challenge you. You go back and read the Quran. Read the literature of Islam coming from the 600s up until the present world. Look at what people testify about Muhammad and then you compare what you learn about Muhammad with what you learn about Jesus. That English class will tell you that there's no difference between Judaism and Christianity and Islam. Let me tell you, it's a lot more complicated than this. This Jewish culture will tell you that Moses really was a prophet of God. He really did receive the truth, and this Jesus will agree with that assessment. But we'll also go on and say that if you really listen carefully to Moses, so if you're really a good Old Testament Jew, and you really look at what the Old Testament says, you're not going to accept Christendom as a culture, but you will receive one of your Jewish brothers called Jesus. That's the challenge that we have here. And what the Apostle Paul is saying is that it does make a difference. I believe that you can go back in time and just as certainly as I celebrated Fiona's birthday for real, and you can verify it, I believe you can go back through history and read what Christian people like you have believed, and you can go marching right back in the first century, and then you're going to have to decide, do I think Peter is a liar? Is Paul the liar? Is James a liar? Is John a liar? That's the decision you have to make. And then you're only going to have to decide, is, is Jesus a liar? And that's your choice. And it's all about Jesus. Jesus will claim, if you believe in Moses, someone greater than Moses is here. I'm greater than Moses. Then Jesus says, you're going to have to decide. Will you believe that I'm greater than Moses? And I say, yes, Lord Jesus, I believe you're greater than Moses. And I want to close with this. You say, Dave, well, how do we win? Some of you are all whomped up. I, I use homosexuality today because it's a big debate in our culture and you can get really mad about it. And that's what we need to remember. I've talked to you about truth today and I've talked to you about your breastplate of righteousness, which is really Christ's 
moral life coming to live inside of you and God the Father's righteousness, his conformity to his standards, his internal integrity living through you. But Paul said you need to have your feet prepared with the gospel of peace. I want to close with that. It's the gospel of peace. What I see among a lot of evangelicals is no peace. In our churches, we can't get along. So I want to ask you, are you feeling anger towards someone else in our church? Do you feel that someone really screwed up badly and they didn't manifest Christ? Do you talk to others about that? That's what I can do that. I can be tempted to do that. Do you care about truth? If you care about truth, then just like finding out what I did yesterday, if you got mad at me today because I didn't celebrate Fiona's birthday, you woke up and you heard me say, well, I didn't really go down to Austin, but it was just a story in my mind. So some of you go out of here really mad. Would that be legitimate? But that's what a whole lot of us do. We do it at work. We do it on our families because we don't care about truth. What you would need to do if you got ticked at me because I didn't go to Austin to celebrate Fiona's birthday, that's what you thought. You should come and ask me because I want to know the truth. And then you should say, well, I don't really believe you. I'll talk to Mary. You can do that. I want you to care in your business about the truth because your work's going to fall apart because people don't care about truth. Your political situation in the United States is going to blow apart because we don't care about truth. I want you to really care about truth. And I've talked to you about truth and how to discover it. You go to firsthand sources. You ask yourself, can I really trust that source? And then you put it all together. Is the story consistent? And on and on it goes. You do that every single day. I want you in a conversation when you hear someone saying, well, is that really the truth? Do you know that the husband really said that to their kid or their wife? Let's go and talk to him about it. That's a really strong accusation. So let's get in the car. Let's go and talk to him because you said so-and-so and so-and-so. Man, it's amazing how quickly things change in relationships truth needs to really mean a lot to us and it doesn't mean anything in our culture today i want truth to mean something again i don't believe that righteousness moral standards is just what i make up i believe real people get sick when we don't follow god's sexual laws not just god's homosexual laws but his laws against heterosexual unfaithfulness and all of that but i also believe we close today there's good news Ask the average unbeliever, when you think of Jesus and his followers, what do you think about? Do you think of peace? They get along. They're reconciled. They can work through the toughest personal problems there is, like a problem between a Palestinian and a Jewish person. But if they know Jesus, they can live even in the Holy Land, and because of Jesus, they can get along. Is that what Christianity is known for? And that's what I wanted to become known for. We have good news that brings peace. If you doubt what I'm saying about the gospel of peace, what's keeping me going is, yeah, marriages blow apart. Yeah, there's conflict in our church, but I can also see a movement of God's spirit that's bringing reconciliation and that's bringing peace. The idea here is not so much on invading Albania, as important that is, There are verses that say, go into all the world and make disciples. All those verses are really strong. But Paul's passage is more about being prepared to face spiritual conflict with the evil one because you found peace. One of the most powerful ways that you can witness to your friends is for you to have peace. For you to be at peace with God, reconciled to him because of his gift of grace. For you to be at peace as husbands and wives for you to be working through the conflict you have with your kids. And I want us to pray that we're going to have our feet solid 
strongly planted could we found that the gospel produces peace.